Welcome to J-Life with Daniel. I'm your host, Rabbi Daniel Levine. Okay, well, today we have a special honor. I am right now sitting next to former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Prime Minister Ehud, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Orange County and welcome to J-Life with Daniel. Thank you for inviting me. This is so exciting. So in my profession, I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, I'm not so much a journalist or a politician. So I really want to start off with a Jewish question, not so much a political question. You know, when we look at the Jewish people in the last 2,000 years, the idea that we actually have our own state and we have political autonomy would have seemed incredible, almost fantastical to Jews living over the past 2,000 years spread out throughout the diaspora. What does it mean to you as somebody who's been able to be basically the most powerful Jew, not just in the world when you served as prime minister, but really in the scan, in the span of Jewish history? Can you talk about a little bit about your Jewish identity and how you sort of see that? Well, let's put things in the right place. Uh, Prime Minister of Israel is never the strongest Jew in uh, a historic perspective. He may be the most uh, powerful uh, person at a time that he is serving as Prime Minister for the state of uh, Israel, uh, perhaps not far beyond it. Uh, But uh, for me, of course, uh, this was a very exciting experience because uh, uh, like many of my generation, my parents came from outside of Israel Mm -hmm. to live in the state of Israel. And in the case of my parents and in the case of many other Jews, the reason they came to Israel was not because they were running away from persecutions, but because as Zionists, they chose to live in where they thought the Jews should be, which is in the ancient homeland. My parents came from China, uh, where they grew up, in the northeast uh, part of China, in Manchuria. And uh, they uh, never suffered any anti-Semitic uh, mm. experience. And Jews in China never had any problems with the Chinese population. The Chinese are not anti-Semites. So as far as they were concerned, they could live there indefinitely. They chose to go to Israel because they wanted to live in what they dreamt will one day be the state of Israel, which turned out to be the case. It took 15 years since they made Aliyah to Israel until they uh, became citizens of the independent uh, sovereign uh, Jewish state state of Israel. So that attachment to Israel and Zionism that you're talking about in terms of your parents and that you so certainly seem to have adopted. something of great significance for uh, a person like me, my brothers, my uh, uh, mates in the, the school uh, in the neighborhood where I live. They all were uh, sons and daughters of parents that uh, made Aliyah uh, to the state of Israel before the creation of the state of Israel. And uh, they were very proud and uh, they were very devoted uh, to the future, to the well being, to the strength uh, of the state of Israel and to its ability to fulfill its destination, which is to become a secured homeland for all the Jewish people. So let's talk about a little bit about what that means for Israel to be a secure homeland for the Jewish people. Possibly what you are 
most famous for, at least in the American Jewish community and the American political community, is the Annapolis Conference in 2008. And the way that I'm thinking about this, the way that I assume most of our listeners are thinking about this, is the Annapolis Conference was the last actual attempt by an Israeli government prime minister to try for a two-state solution. Now, of course, the Annapolis Conference failed. Mahmoud Abbas said no. But in your words, why do you think that failed? What were you trying to do in terms of your 2008 deal? And do you think, looking forward, something like that will ever be possible again? The Annapolis process is a name that was given in a way uh, retroactively to something that started long before uh, Annapolis. The Annapolis conference took place in November of 2007. The, the uh, negotiating process between me and the Palestinian leader started in December of 2006. And by the time that Annapolis took place, we had already established a very strong uh, and quite unusual basis of personal trust between the two of us. And we were very advanced in the efforts to uh, create a framework which was essential for what we hoped would become uh, the uh, peace agreement between Israel and the uh, Palestinians. Uh, I think that the efforts made by uh, President Bush and Secretary of State Condi Rice at that time was uh, very, very significant because one thing was for me and Abu Mazen to sit in um, the, uh, in most of the cases, in the study of the Prime Minister, the Balfour uh, residence of the Israeli Prime Ministers, and discuss the future options. And another thing was to appear in front of the whole world uh, with the presence of well over 60 foreign ministers and uh, uh, heads of world organizations uh, in front of all the cameras of every network of any consequence uh, from every corner of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, together, uh, the president of the Palestinian Authority, the, the Prime Minister of Israel, and the President of the United States of America, and stretching hands to each other, and holding hands, and, uh, uh, and talking about living together and making peace. Uh, so, uh, while it was not the beginning of the process, while actually we started it a uh, long time before, I'm ready to accept the title of the uh, Annapolis uh, conference for the entire process, uh, because I think that the Annapolis event uh, made a very powerful presentation to the international community and to the uh, populations in the uh, countries involved, both the Israeli population and the Palestinian population, a very, very important uh, uh, step uh, on the way to uh, some kind of a reconciliation between uh, the two peoples. Sure. And I want to get back to sort of the global element in a little bit. I want to eventually ask you about the Abraham Accords, but let's stay in 2007, 2008 for a little bit. You obviously grew up on the right. You were a member of Likud, sort of the ideological position generally for, for our listeners that wants a both united singular Jerusalem, also believes that Yehuda Shamron, Judea and Samaria slash the West Bank should become or is a part of Israel. Yet you 
famously offered basically the most gracious offer of any Israeli prime minister, both in terms of giving back about 90 to 95, depending on which map you trust, of the West Bank, and also famously dividing Jerusalem. Was this an ideological shift that you underwent? Was this a pragmatic shift? What exactly happened there? Well, number one, I think uh, we have to uh, present what I have actually proposed in somewhat uh, more accurate manner. Uh, I never offered a uh, slicing of Jerusalem or the divide, division of Jerusalem. Uh, I was ready to get rid of the Arab parts of Jerusalem, which were never part of the Jewish uh, Jerusalem, never were part of Jewish history, never were part of Jewish memories. So you're talking about what we would consider to be Jerusalem in the Tanakh and Jewish literature, as opposed to what Jerusalem is on a map today. And yeah, Jerusalem on, on the map today is is not is not really Jerusalem. Uh, the uh, refugee camp in Shafat has nothing to do with Jewish history or Jewish Jerusalem. Uh, the same is for Jabal Mukhaber and for Beit Hanina and for Sheikh uh, Jirach and for Isawiya and for many other parts of the city of Jerusalem, which were never part for us, the Jews, the focus of everything that we were praying for, yearning for, dreaming of, was the uh, holy places for the Jewish people, which were the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, and uh, these parts of the city, but not what turned out to be eventually uh, our villages surrounding these parts of Jerusalem. So there was never a, a, a proposition to divide the city. I wanted to keep the Jewish part of the city entirely in the hands of the state of Israel. The only thing that I proposed, which was a, a very dramatic compromise, was not giving up uh, Jabal Mukhaber and all the other Isawiya and all the other Arab parts of the city. The, what I proposed was that for the sake of achieving peace, we will not have exclusive political sovereignty over the Temple Mount. Let's face it, Temple Mount is very important for us. Mm -hmm. For obvious reasons, we've been dreaming about it, we've been praying for it. Well, we prayed for Zion, we prayed for the Temple Mount. We didn't pray for... Tel uh, um, and Not for any other sections of what has eventually become the municipal uh, map of uh, Jerusalem. We prayed for the Temple Mount and for the wall. Uh, however, we all know that the Temple Mount is also an enormously sensitive place for the Muslims. And the old city of Jerusalem is an enormously sensitive place for Christians. Let's face it, you know, Jerusalem has more Christian denominations than any city in the world. Any city hmm. in the world. There are, uh, you know, Rome is the center of the Catholic Church. There are many uh, different uh, churches in different cities in Europe and in other parts of the world. There is not one city where there are churches of more than 40 Christian denominations. You name it, every Christian uh, denomination has a presence in Jerusalem. This is unbelievable. And there is one church, one, 
in Jerusalem, which is the most sacred place for Christians of all the different denominations. Mm -hmm. They, their divisions amongst the Christians are just as uh, significant as they are amongst the Jews. The secular, the Reform, the Conservative, the Orthodox, the Ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidic, the Non-Hasidic, and so on. We can go on forever. Sure. It's also true about Christians. There is one place which is a sacred, equally sacred, for all the different Christian denominations. And this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is believed by Christians to be the burial place of Christ. And this is also part of the old city of Jerusalem. So now tell me, by any moral justice, who deserves to have an exclusive political sovereignty in that section of the city? Jews, Muslims, Christians, it's a problem. I actually so uh, you, agree with sorry, you. If you want to make peace, that is, if you want to find a way to bring together all these different peoples, all these different faiths, all these different attitudes, and make them live together, you need to give up the desire to have an exclusive position that is denied from the others. What you have to do, you have to guarantee, is that every believer will have free access to the holy places of his faith, which is what I proposed. I said there will not be, in the holy basin in Jerusalem, there will not be a political, exclusive political sovereignty for the Jews only, or for the Palestinians, or for the Christians, any, but there will, it will be dominated by a trust of five nations, but there will be free access mm -hmm. for Jews uh, to the Temple Mount, for Jews to the wall, for Arabs to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, for Christians to the churches, and so on and so forth. And I think that this was the most practical way. way. It didn't really require uh, any dramatic change in my ideological approach. What it required was to recognize uh, the realities of our lives and to set up priorities which were congruent with uh, what we think is the best for the future of the Jewish people. And what about in terms of the West Bank, right? Obviously, if we're considering Jewish history, most of the Tanakh took place in Yehuda Vishomron, right? The area specifically that would be given to the Palestinians in a two-state solution. Certainly, you know, growing up in the ideological right, I can't imagine, though I don't know this for sure, when you were 25, you would have been in favor of a two-state solution. Yes. So what, what ended up changing? Not, I was not a, in the beginning in favor of a two-state solution, but I reached the conclusion that there will never be peace without a separation between us and the Palestinians. And the question is, what is more important uh, to uh, uh, take full control of every bit of territory and to become completely isolated, boycotted uh, in the international community as we are moving forward to, mm -hmm. or to say, okay, the land is important, but the ability to live uh, in peace, to uh, be able to establish um, friendly relationships with other people that will then have the right to 
uh, exercise uh, self-determination just as we want. Uh, I think that there are different and conflicting attitudes uh, in Jewish tradition for this kind of solution. Historically, all of the greatest Jewish moral leaders and religious leaders would have preferred pikuach uh, nefesh over territory, would have preferred peace over territory, even if that means that we would willingly and voluntarily, and not uh, because someone threatens us, just because we decide that this is best for us, we pull out from certain territories. Uh, the, in recent years, particularly after the Six-Day War, there were sections in the population which become, uh, which have become messianic and were dominated by a euphoric uh, approach uh, to the territories, and for them, uh, this is the single most important thing in life, uh, more than anything else, more than and then living in peace, more than uh, living, uh, more than allowing people to to have their rights, just as we allow ourselves to exercise our rights, and so on and so forth. I think that this is not Jewish. I think that this has not uh, represented. The, uh, the tradition, the legacy of our ancestors. And uh, I don't think that uh, we have to surrender to these uh, messianic dreams. We have to be realistic, we have to be practical, and we have to uh, think about the uh, option of creating um, the kind of relationships with our neighbors and obviously and ultimately also with the international community that will provide us the necessary conditions to live at the best possible way. Mm -hmm. So I hear you sort of making two different arguments in terms of why it's important to either pull back from certain parts of land or to trade land for peace one is sort of a global argument, and you're saying for the Jewish people and for the state of Israel, it will be better if we get rid of certain amounts of land, both in terms of it'll ease international pressure, it'll make Israel seem, in your words, less like an international pariah or boogeyman. Perhaps also it will allow for sort of a peaceful separation, and Israel won't have to worry about what to do with millions of Palestinians sort of living under their political or military control. The other, the other answer you're giving, which I, I want to sort of um, dig into a little bit, is smaller ethical concerns about Palestinians. You're using the language of Palestinian rights and things like that. Do you think what Israel is doing, let's say since you ceased to be prime minister 13, 14 years ago, is Israel abrogating certain human rights? Is Israel doing things that you believe to be unethical vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, forgetting any other international concerns about how people see Jews or Israel in the international media? We may not want to originally to do things which are unethical. Uh, had we been asked, I mean, do we want to do this? Is it important for us? Is it acceptable by our uh, fundamental standards and tradition and so on? The answer will be no. But in practicality, in the everyday life, under the constraints 
that were created when we want to control territories which are inhabited by millions of people that don't want us. That's what uh, it does. It, it, it forces us to take measures which are, can't be interpreted other than just violating the basic human rights of other people. And this is something that we have to be very careful not to, uh, to be obsessed with, to believe that the rights that we think we have justifies the means that we take in order to exercise them. So what you're saying is you believe that Israel has a right, obviously, to security and self-determination and peace, perhaps even a right to the entire land, as you were saying before, but that doesn't justify the means of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians I to get there? That, I think that while we certainly have a right to dream uh, to uh, have all these territories, which were part of our history for thousands of years, that that is not compatible with what it requires in order to be there. And so we have to make a choice which is more important for us as human beings and as Jews to exercise our rights for land or to recognize the same rights that we expect to have ourselves also to be given to others. And I think that if one will look back at the history of the Jewish people, we were always a lot more tolerant in recognizing the rights of other people than what we are doing now when we try to deny the uh, rights of other peoples uh, to have the rights that we uh, want to secure for ourselves. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit vis-a-vis -vis what's been happening in Israel over the past couple of weeks. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a podcast about Itamar Ben-Gavir, of course, the new MK who has sort of neo-Kahanist views. You know, we can sort of go into a whole, a whole rabbit hole of all the bad things he did and, you know, and has done and sort of his ideological considerations vis-a-vis -vis Arabs and everything like that. Israel as a society has certainly moved to the right in the past really the past 40, 50 years, but certainly since, let's say, the Second Intifada, or right after your prime ministership, Israel basically has been continuously going to the right. What do you think is happening? Are Israelis more worried about security now? Is this sort of the general trends of nationalism that we're seeing taking place in a lot of countries? You know, how does somebody like Itamar Ben-Gavir, who 40 years ago would have been booed out of Knesset, as Mayor Kahana used to be, how is he getting 15% of the population of Jews that are living in Israel to vote for him? Number one, we never got 15% of the population. We got less. So let's not blow it out mm. of its... I'm talking about the, the Jews in Israel, right? So if we take 80% of the Israeli population uh, we, Jews, uh, oh. give, or take, give or take a couple percentages. Excuse me. Ignoring the fact that Israel is uh, inhabited by 20% non-Jews, which are entitled to be equal citizens with full rights in the state of Israel, is already uh, a moral um, uh, mistake of uh, significant proportions. We can't do that. They live here. 
that are part of the state of Israel, and they should be considered as equal partners to everything that happens here. The state of Israel is a Jewish state, and no one denies it. By the way, the leader of the Islamic party, which was part of the last coalition, Mansour Abbas, said, I recognize Israel as a Jewish state. He doesn't want to uh, question the, uh, the natural definition of what Israel is all about. But that does not mean that when we talk about the uh, public opinion within the state of Israel, we have to ignore 20% of the population. So that's number one. The truth is more complex. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the support that Netanyahu has, and the truth is that Netanyahu, of all the historical leaders of Likud, was the least supported as a Likud member, uh, as a Likud leader, by the public opinion of our country. Menachem Begin, in 1977, received 43 mandates, 11 more than Netanyahu got now. Uh, Menachem Begin in 1981 received 48, the Likud of Menachem Begin, received 48 mandates in mm -hmm. the Knesset, which is 16 more than Netanyahu. Yitzhak Shamir in different elections got 42, 43 uh, mandates, which is also 10 and 11 more than Netanyahu. Arik Sharon got in 2003 uh, 38 members. The, all of these leaders of Likud, I was not a leader of Likud, I was a leader of Kadima, mm -hmm. which split from Likud and uh, also included um, um, former members of the Labour Party, like Shimon Peres. Uh, but uh, all the leaders of Likud were supported in Israel more than Netanyahu ever was. So let's put things in, in the right place to start with. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the question is, what had Netanyahu made of the Likud that he represents? The Likud that Menachem Begin represented was very much in favor of greater Israel and of all of Israel and of course United Jerusalem and whatnot. But Menachem Begin was a person of historic proportions. Uh, of uh, moral convictions. He believed in the equality of people, Jews or non-Jews. He was against the government, uh, the, the um, Marshall uh, government in uh, Israel before the 67 war, when the Labour Party of Ben-Gurion imposed it, okay? And that does not contradict the fact that he was in favor of a greater Israel, mm -hmm. but he believed in the uh, equality of non-Jews. And ultimately, when he became prime minister, he understood that what he thought was possible turned out to be impossible. He understood that if he will try to uh, realize the dreams about a greater Israel, it will be at the expense of the basic moral rights of other people. And he refrained from doing it, as he pulled out from all of Sinai. Mm -hmm. And he was definitely as committed to um, maintaining uh, these borders, uh, at least as Netanyahu, if not more. And, and the same was Arik Sharon. So the great leadership is measured not only by the ability to spell out all kinds of slogans, sometimes uh, shallow and uh, simplistic, but the ability to pull out, to turn around, to change what used to be your position 
in view of what appears to you at the time that you hold the ultimate responsibility uh, to, uh, to do, which is different from what you thought you could do. And this was the greatest uh, manifestation of leadership that uh, Menachem Begin showed when he made the agreement with Egypt and made peace with Egypt, mm -hmm. which was an historic turning point in the life of the State of Israel. And this is what uh, Sharon did when he pulled out from Gaza because he knew that uh, to, to continue to stay in Gaza will not bring any good to the people of Israel. Yeah, there is sort of an irony there that most of the land for peace swaps that Israel has done have been people from the right and sort of the ideological camp that does stress the need for greater Israel, but also with the sort of ethical concerns. Um, I want to get back to Bibi in a second and ask you a couple questions, but specifically about the election results. I mean, Israel has just, I mean, we still don't know exactly how the coalition is going to be made up, but all signs are pointing to this next government in Israel being the most far-right religious, both in terms of Haredi and in terms of Dati Lumi, religious Zionism. Why is Israel society all of a sudden looking upon people like Itamar Ben-Gavir as a worthwhile option to vote for when that same person 30 or 40 years ago would have probably received maybe one mandate in the Knesset? Uh, look, number one, I mean, when we look at the overall uh, outcome, practice that the country is divided into two more or less equal blocks. The uh, margin of the uh, victory of the bloc of Netanyahu is 5,000 votes or 6,000 votes. Mm -hmm. The division of the attitudes of the population of Israel remain more or less the same. 50% are against annexation, 50% are against uh, uh, you know, some of these uh, slogans about uh, expelling the Arabs and uh, kicking them out of uh, the borders and uh, making uh, uh, unilateral steps of annexation and so on and so forth. The nature, and by the way, the, the, the uh, division or, or the, of the opinions is even much different on substance. The ultra-orthodox parties mm -hmm. are now part of the block of Netanyahu, but the ultra-orthodox parties are not in favor of annexation, are not in favor of the settlements. They don't settle in the territories, that, and they constitute uh, the same size of uh, uh, Ben-Gvir, perhaps even bigger in this uh, public opinion, okay? So if you take them into the block, the other block, the majority of the people of Israel are against these uh, slogans and measures. The problem is that the religious ultra-Orthodox parties are so obsessed with their desire to maintain their way of life uh, and, uh, and the use of government revenues in order to support their way of life that they are ready to sacrifice other principles that they never represented them in order to achieve this, which the other bloc is not prepared to grant them. So it's uh, the, the, the picture which may surface as a result of the last elections does not really represent an accurate 
division of uh, the uh, opinions of Israelis with regard to the territories, to settlements, to annexation, and so on. It may be ultimately the political outcome mm -hmm. because of the makeup of the coalition, but it doesn't really represent the basic principles that represent these parties. So staying on uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for a second, you are famously or infamously, depending on who you ask, engaged right now in a lawsuit with the Netanyahus a couple of months ago. You know, you can correct me on the exact language here. You called them mental patients or hospital patients. They sued you for libel. You sued them back. And I believe that that's still being discussed in the courts. Um, what's, what's happening here, right? If we take a step back, what is, is this indicative of sort of more fundamental political feuds? Or I guess what prompted you to keep this lawsuit going even after a judge basically said, you know, we can throw out the lawsuit and everybody will agree to disagree? There's so many inaccuracies in one question. <laughs> it take me a lot of time to try and correct it. Number one, I never uh, sued the family uh, in court. They sued me. They sued me because they said uh, about them that they were that they were in their attitudes, in their behavior, they were uh, behaving like uh, mentally. Uh, disturbed people. And uh, that, of course, uh, was, uh, I think, the most, the mildest expression used against the family and uh, by any, uh, in comparison to so many other things that were said about them. Uh, for whatever reason, they decided to sue me for libel. Uh, it's going to be con concluded soon. Uh, I never try to say uh, anything on the basis of any medical expertise about the uh, status because I don't think that anyone will ever suspect that I pretend to be what I'm not. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a uh, professional in this area. I reflected the most natural, spontaneous impression of what we all saw in the uh, uh, behavior of this family, the son, and the mother, and the father. And the least important person in that family is the father because it has been manifested time and again that the ones that take the decisions are the son and the mother, and the father is always in the minority, and they have uh, a trio which decides by majority. Mm -hmm. And since the mother and the son are always in the majority in many different events of national importance that relate to the most sensitive issues of our lives, Bibi Netanyahu was forced by his uh, family to do things which we were, he was uh, against because... So Israeli policy is being settled at Shabbat dinner debates at the Netanyahu household? No, I don't know exactly the, the way. I, I've never been... Uh, uh, invited, no, I think <laughs> uh, receptive to an invitation to have Shabbat dinner with them. I prefer to have Shabbat dinner with my family and my children, my grandchildren. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, but at some point in the family, uh, this is the process, and it has something that has disturbed uh, millions of Israelis. 
and uh, and uh, I was not the only one. I criticized this guy, this family. I criticized the manner in which they conduct themselves, because I wanted that the public opinion of Israel will be uh, will address itself uh, to uh, the danger mm-hmm. that uh, we may uh, face as a result of the way that they uh, conduct themselves. And uh, as I said, I think that I was amongst the mildest. I was perhaps, obviously, more well-known, more important, uh, with, with maybe more impact of what I say than others. But today, in and day out, uh, former generals in the army, former uh, commanders of the uh, uh, Israeli Secret Service or the Mossad, uh, professors of the academy, they say that Bibi is ready to sell the country for the sake of his own personal benefit. What else, what worse can be said about a person? Uh, and, and things like that. And he decided, and they say that he will sell uh, the, uh, the national and the security interests of the State of Israel for personal benefits. Uh, you would assume that this is uh, something that will justify also a lawsuit, but for whatever reasons, uh, Netanyahu decided to pick me up out of all the others uh, to sue me for libel, and uh, you know it will be resolved one way or another. Uh, so I so believe we have time for one last question here. Yeah. What would you say? So most of the listeners here are going to be American Jews, whether they're college students or community members here and around Orange County. What would you say to an American Jewish community who is seeing what's happening in Israel in terms of the rightward tilt, in terms of a lot of these suggested, say, social policy of condemning and belittling non-Orthodox forms of Judaism and all of that? What would you say to an American Jewish community that, again, deep in their soul, they want to be consistent supporters of Israel and they're, you know, they would identify as pro-Israel and Zionist on any poll given to them, but yet they're becoming increasingly troubled by both the internal and external policies of Israel. What sort of optimistic or positive pep talk can you give to our uh, community here? Number one, I say to the community, uh, we are not more divided than you guys are. Let's face it, the American Jewish community is divided amongst itself just as much as we are divided in Israel. There are conservative Jews here, there are Orthodox Jews here, there are uh, ultra-Orthodox, there are Hasidic, there are non-Hasidic, the same as we have in Israel. And also, uh, they, uh, they are uh, um, secular Jews, uh, which maybe is a majority of the Jewish community in America. Uh, and uh, there are li- uh, left-wings, there are right-wings, uh, wingers, there are Republicans, they are Democrats, they are Trump supporters, they are Trump haters, they are Biden supporters, they are Biden haters. So I think the Jewish community in America reflects the diversity uh, similar to what we have. And I think it then therefore will be uh, easier for some of them to understand the diversity which is uh, manifested in the makeup of uh, our society. What I think is of greater significance, and this is something that should uh, draw our uh, uh, attention and perhaps energies to it, is the fact that Israel is 
uh, increasingly identified with immoral uh, values that are reflected by the fact that uh, in the eyes of the world and now in the eyes of the United Nations uh, after the last weekend vote, uh, we are occupiers, which means that we deny the rights of other people to entertain the basic uh, fundamental uh, way of life that they deserve as we deserve. And uh, this is something that will damage the reputation of Israel, will damage the status of Israel, and I am afraid that will also detract many of the young Jews in the Jewish community which were absolutely committed to the well-being of the state of Israel, but they are not prepared to be committed to the violation of human rights which are identified today with the way that Israel uh, conducts itself. So this is something that I think should be very, very uh, much in the uh, awareness of the uh, leadership of the state of Israel. We should think overall what is really that which will make the difference for us. Uh, another uh, few uh, um, uh, acres of land uh, or uh, and maybe a, a different way of life that will recognize uh, the rights of other people, that will refrain from occupying uh, other people, uh, and that will uh, also become a, a lot more tolerant within ourselves to different views, to different uh, uh, ways of life, uh, things that if we will know how to handle, will most likely bring a, a greater happiness uh, to a greater number of people living in the state of Israel and watching us from the outside by caring very much for what Israel is all about. Amen. Well, Prime Minister Ehud Omert, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. And remember, you can always reach me with feedback, questions, or suggestions at dlevine21 at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.